0: We're constantly looking across the entire supply chain. What are those constraints from a capacity point of view? And then how do we provide, I'll say, margin or surge ability, not just from production operation, but wartime surge, you know, for repairing and sparing of material in support of the enterprise. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the AirPower podcast, powered by
1: GE Aerospace. Je m'appelle JJ Gertler. Et je m'appelle Wagon This week's program comes to you from the 54th Paris Air Show, where top government officials, executives, and analysts from every part of the defense and aerospace business converge here on this historic airfield outside the French capital where Charles Lindbergh ended his transatlantic trip. And while they're here, they did a lot of walking, a lot of sweating, riding trams, and eating at some of the best restaurants on the planet. We talked to several of those leaders, including Lockheed Martin Aeronautics boss Greg Ulmer, and we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next
2: generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster,
1: and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII. Sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on all wings considered, literally uh, all wings considered?
2: Everywhere you
1: look, there are wings here at Paris,
2: Vago. It's a place where, on the commercial side, aircraft manufacturers regularly announce new deals. On the military side, though, this show has been very quiet, except when the Dassault Rafale or the F-35 are flying. We have yet to hear any announcements of aircraft sales in the military world. There's plenty of tire kicking, with aircraft and mock-ups on the scene from the U.S., France, Turkey, and many more. For the US, Air Force Acquisition Executive Andrew Hunter and Army Acquisition Executive Doug Bush are on the scene and ready to take your orders, no tipping allowed. There's a full-size mock-up of the Franco-German-Spanish FCAS, or SCAF, sixth-generation fighter here, which is a rather larger aircraft than I was envisioning. This week, Belgium joined that program as an observer, the kind of thing that usually leads to them eventually being included as a formal partner. We just got a little more information on the secretive next-generation air dominance program. According to sources involved in the program, there are two competitors in what is expected now to be a winner-take-all competition. Still no word as to when in 2024 that down selection will take place. The House Armed Services Committee, Mark, takes $550 million out of the NGAD program. We'll see if that survives conference and the appropriations process. GE Aerospace, which is the sponsor of this program, has announced a dual-mode ramjet-scramjet engine aimed at helping various things go hypersonic. And the U.S. Air Force has resumed F-22 training. You'll remember that Hurricane Michael flattened Tyndall Air Force Base, which is where that training took place until 2018. Raptor pilots will now learn their trade at Joint Base Langley-Eustace in Virginia, home of First Fighter.
1: Vago? Uh, Absolutely uh, fascinating. Thanks very much. Okay, so obviously, we have to start with uh, NGAP. This is a program on which very little is known. uh, And even some of the things we think we know, we might not know, uh, in part because the program is so secretive. Uh, Our very own Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities learned that there are three demonstrators, right? That's what we had assumed uh, already. It would be Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, and Boeing, of course, would be Uh, In that race, none of the companies have said anything about it. I should say uh, that as we're getting all of this, we haven't had a chance to fully report it because we had to get this podcast uh, out. And we'll have more for you guys next uh, week on it. And also, I should also say, we learned this after we talked to Greg Ulmer, so we do not get to to this uh, question at all, Uh, although just about everybody has denied everything about it, including, you know, possible involvement, or rather has just said, we feel that we're competitive, right? So how does this, from your standpoint, right, I mean, what's interesting, because this would be pretty consistent, wouldn't it, JJ? I mean, in terms of going from three to two and eventually to one. It wouldn't be
2: at all unusual. And
1: what's interesting is the source
2: that talked to me about there now being two competitors didn't know when the down select to one was going to happen, even though they are directly involved. They were asking me when I thought it was going to happen. Uh,
1: which is very interesting uh, in indeed, right? But uh, just uh, to let the audience know, right, really quickly, what is the known schedule for NGAD, right? Well, we, we're, there's a lot of discussion, obviously, about uh, SCAF, uh, right? I mean, that's a mm-hmm. 2040 program. Do we have any sense on what the dates are that the Air Force has said about when they at least want it IOC and we can work it backward from there?
2: They've talked about having an initial combat capability, which is different from IOC, by 2030. But we don't know if that means, for example, that they would have the collaborative combat aircraft in place, but not necessarily the manned aircraft that's at the center or whether that's for a full-up system.
1: And we should say, right. and is a family of systems, the systems of systems, uh, and uh, the collaborative combat aircraft is an important part of it. Uh, and as we you know, as we'll hear from Greg about the same numbers, and the secretary has said that too, right? about two hundred airplanes, f twenty twos type by, even if there are some of the companies that are in- involved. And and actually, we have reason to believe, in terms of how senior executives from all the companies have responded, that you know they're they're at least involved or or were uh, at least uh, involved, whether it's from Northrop, from Lockheed, or or from uh, Boeing. I mean, the the interesting thing is that a number have privately said to me was whether or not it's actually like given the kind of capability the Air Force wants, does that actually diminish the buy? Right, ultimately we bought the B-21 the way we bought the B-21 was to get more B-21s the way we're going to buy this can we actually execute a program and have 150 aircraft or 170 or 200 aircraft if they're going to be really as bespoke potentially as they might be I mean is is that is that what you're hearing as well
2: well look the Air Force has tried this before the notion of a silver bullet force with the F-117 have a small number of aircraft that have unique capability and then have them pave the way for the rest of the Air Force to bring its muscle to bear. It's not too surprising, especially given the price figures we're hearing about this aircraft, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars each, it, that the Air Force would be wanting to go with that same kind of a small silver bullet force.
1: And one of the uh, airplanes uh, that was incredibly impressive to see in the in the air was the 777X uh, which put on a very aggressive display for a gigantic airplane. Although I have to say, I do think, you know, even though obviously the house favorite is uh, the Rafale, um, I think it was the F-35 that really wowed people uh, with its demonstration. A lot of people are used to seeing the F-35 Bravo do its uh, hovering and pirouetting, whereas this was a 9G-capable F-35 that was doing some pretty amazing maneuvers.
2: In the hands of Kristen Wolf who's the F-35 demonstration pilot, every day you knew when that plane was in the air because when it was over your chalet, you could not interview the people sitting across the
1: table. You had to wait for a moment for it to go by. Indeed, the bane of every air show. And then every car alarm in the parking lot is also going <laughs> going, going, off. What else did you pick up in the course of the air show, Bonangad, or anything else?
2: Curiously, very little. And I say curiously, very little, be, not because people weren't talking about Engad. it is after all a very secret program, but we weren't hearing that much about its future counterparts. The future combat air system, which the French call SCAF with a little bit of a flare, uh, is h- here in mock-up form, as we mentioned. People were talking some about that, but we still don't know a whole lot about that plane. The bigger question for that and for its british counterpart the global combat aircraft formerly the tempest is now who's going to buy it are those aircraft going to be priced like an f-15 so that a country that wants a top-end fighter is comfortable getting into it what about countries that really don't have a lot of experience operating complex aircraft This is going to be a system that's working along with uninhabited adjunct aircraft. Some of the countries that they're hoping to sell to have never even flown uninhabited aircraft. So it's not only a financial leap for some of these countries, it would be an operational leap. So it'll be curious to see what kind of a market actually develops for these sixth generation aircraft, presuming that the United States will not sell NGAD to anybody else. And even if they did, the price is likely to be prohibitive.
1: Um, well, and, and w- one of the things we should point out is the United States has uh, experience with fifth generation aircraft, obviously F-117s. And, and and right, I mean, F-117s are still maintained in operational order. So there are a lot of pictures online of F-117s uh, mm-hmm. being put through their paces on a regular basis. We have the F-22, we have the F-35. And I think that people have a tendency of underestimating exactly how difficult integrating an airplane like this is. So even if there are going to be some very highly qualified companies, and Dassault is one of the best, Airbus is a great airplane company as well, uh, and so is BAE Systems and all of its partners, whether Leonardo or uh, Spanish industry, uh, in the case of SCAF. It is going to be very interesting to see how this exactly plays out. uh, And whether, you know, given AI, given uninhabited platforms, you know, how relevant a platform like this is come 2040, right? Which is the date that the Europeans have set in order to have the SCAF in inventory.
2: Sure. The other issue that arose, and Greg Ulmer talked about this some in our interview, is interfaces. And I'll let him use his words to describe it. But it is an interesting problem to consider that you've got a whole new generation of aircraft with three entrants from allied nations Yet, right now, we don't know that they can even communicate with each other. So the development of that ability is going to mean a lot for allied interoperability.
1: Uh, and, and indeed, we've he- heard the chief as well as uh, the secretary talk about how important it is that it's it's great that everybody does their thing, but it's important for all of us uh, to have that interconnectivity. But I will tell you that um, our European partners want us to start that process of what are those common interfaces look like? Uh, but there was a lot of eagerness among all of the, the European SCAF uh, officials that I talked to privately, that it's important for us to start that process uh, sooner uh, than later. I was also going to point out that lucky you, because anybody who knows your history knew that you were Andrew Hunter's predecessor uh, on the House Armed Services Committee, and that Doug Bush was Andrew Hunter's successor, and both of them are, are in the administration. Lucky me. As acquisition chiefs. But Vago, I get to do the podcast with you. Yes, that's right. Boy, that's a big win for you, JJ. I <laughs> yeah, hit the lottery on that one. Um, All right, Well, And I also thought, but well, just one thing I will say, the, the sheer number of hypersonic systems that folks had on display, you know, you talked about the GE motor uh, for it, uh, the guys, uh, you know, there were a lot of companies out there, whether it was Elbit or Raphael, or a lot of other innovative companies, they were putting sort of on display some hypersonic wares, which were interesting, as well as a lot of high end kit. I mean, you know, it's because I have friends over at Safran and, and went over there, they have a very, very interesting modular weapon uh, system, uh, and what makes it particularly interesting is that it has the ability to operate in completely GPS denied environments with with extreme precision. Uh, and so that's that's something which I thought was one of those things that's attractive. A lot of drone, a lot of counter drone systems, you know that you picked up and on on what were very crowded show floors That's true. It's
2: interesting in looking at hypersonics, though different people seem to have a different notion of just how fast hypersonic is. So we'll see whether these systems are actually coming to fruition. And with when they do, they have the kind of performance that we would recognize as hypersonic, where we're talking about Mach 5 and up, or something somewhere between Mach 1 and Mach 5. Either way, you, you're talking about systems that can greatly increase a defender's problem. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Meridian.
1: And as we mentioned at the top of the show, J.J. and I had a terrific opportunity to talk to Greg Ulmer, the vice president for aeronautics at Lockheed Martin. Uh, we met with him at the company's chalet on Chalet Row at the 54th Paris Air Show. Here's our conversation with Greg Ulmer. Greg, thanks so very much for joining us on the Air Power podcast. We know how busy you are, and thanks very much for carving out the time for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Vago. I always appreciate time with you catching up. Indeed, thank you. Let me start
1: with lessons learned. You know, the war in Ukraine on this program, JJ and I have had the honor to talk to everybody from the secretary to the chief, to Andrew Hunter, uh, and many other air power mines. And they talk about that this underscores the importance of air superiority and what happens if you don't have it. The Russians are jamming vast areas of territory. You know, there's a band that makes it difficult to operate unmanned aircraft. As the leading combat aircraft company on the planet what are some of the lessons you're drawing about how does this shape future programs I know you can't say a lot about NGAD but what are some of the lessons that you're drawing for the future
0: yeah I think there's actually several different approaches or or learnings going on and you kind of touched on a few of those Vago Um, GPS denied how do we operate in that environment I think uh, we've learned a ton about uh, long-range fires the consumption which I think then informs the robustness, the resiliency of our supply chain. I think we've gone through several decades, I'll call it just-in-time, in in a different wartime kind of construct, really global war on terror, just-in-time delivery of material, single sourcing of material from an economics point of view. And so from a manufacturing point of view, we're refocused, redoubled on supply chain resilience. And so in the past, we may have had single sources of material. Do we need to be dual? Do we need to be triple? Do we need to have more organic capabilities? Our industry has really gone international. And so there's just a lot of focus, I think, from an industrial complex point of view. Also, I think it underwrites, I'll say, 5th Gen, the value of 5th Gen, and then into the future, 6th Gen, which in my mind... From a philosophical point of view really emphasizes that system of systems approach so in the future i believe you're going to see autonomy we've seen a little bit of autonomy here in terms of autonomous collaborative platforms but we're going to see a lot more of that and you're going to see different scopes and levels of magnitude of that you're going to have expendables you're going to have attritables and then you're going to have um survivable more robust kind of offering in a I think, in a collaborative, autonomous platform kind of point of view. But really, I liken it to, as the F-35 sits today, the F-35 really first senses, and then it kind of makes sense of what it senses, and then it acts. And so I think Ukraine is underwriting that scenario, but an integration across air, land, sea, and space in that sensing, making sense, and then acting. In other words, shortening the kill chain in really simple terms. And so I think... It's really underwriting what we know, but we need to go fast relative to the application, and I'll say the development and design of such.
2: You mentioned the F-35. I know that Vago has a very mean question for you about that, so I'll be the good cop here by comparison and say you've got a happy problem, which is the F-35 is winning competition after competition, it's being selected by any number of nations, and yet production is not able to keep up with the number of orders. Word is you've got a problem with a supplier on center fuselages. What's the way forward to balancing production rate and demand?
0: Yeah, right now the enterprise, so we had we also had a customer removed from the program. And I'll say in broad terms, that customer, think on the order of 850 parts, we had to go resource. That's all complete. All that's been reset. In that reset, we're at about 156 capacity in terms of that. So your point is, We can have demand greater than that so as we brought germany on board in particular we're looking at center fuselage production to increase an additional capacity set relative to that in particular but we're constantly looking across the entire supply chain what are those constraints from a capacity point of view and then how do we provide i'll say margin or surge ability not just from production operation but wartime surge you know, for repairing and sparing of material in support of the enterprise. That's in our DNA, that's in our construct, that's what we do, but it's really been emphasized, I would say, coming out of Ukraine in particular.
1: Let me uh, ask the mean question, as JJ said, although I don't think there's anything wrong with it. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, did a report and said that the Block 4 aircraft, which is the standard that everybody wants in terms of the warfighting capability, is $16.5 billion over budget. It's years behind schedule. Talk to us a little bit about what you guys are doing to get this program back on schedule, address the customer's concerns, and get them that airplane. Because as JJ said, it's a very popular airplane, but then again, people are dialing back Uh, at this moment, rather than being able to deliver at that
0: rate to fill out the
1: fighter Force.
0: Yeah, first of all I want to talk a little bit about what TR3 Tech Refresh 3 is, and what Block 4 is, because I think there's some confusion. TR3, think of it as the IT hardware, relative to support the Block 4 software and some other hardware capabilities that come on to the platform at a little later time. But so with that is a new integrated core processor. So Uh, Think new mission computer, new brains for the F-35. It's going to provide 25 times more computing power than TR2 hardware. There's also a panoramic cockpit display. There's also a new memory unit. As you can imagine with the speed of technology, I, I told you about sensing making sense. We need more capacity relative to memory. It's also going to have a new digital aperture system on the airplane. So I say all that to say that is very complex integration work to do. So what we have done as an enterprise, Lockheed Martin, in particular with L3 Harris, with Northrop Grumman, with others, in that construct is we are working together as an enterprise and inserting ourselves with each other in our spaces and and, and doing that execution, that development work, I would say more integrated than I've ever seen, I'll say on the F-35, I would say in my career. And so what we're doing is let's get ahead of this. Let's do that complex integration within our labs before we get to the airplane. Let's bring everything we can as far to the left as we can for that integration. Let's, let's uh, update and improve our software, um, DevSecOps kind of environment that we operate in. And then let's get that OFP to flight test and we'll go fast. And what we're seeing is that velocity happening. We're, we're making improvements relative to that, and when we get to the jet to do our test, we're seeing improved performance within flight tests. So we still have a little bit more to go, and um, I think the enterprise underestimated the complexity and the amount of integration work that was required to do this work. Do
1: you have a timeline? Like, when, when do you think you're gonna have that capability? L- let's go past the, the flight test starting to be delivered to the customer
0: yeah my commitment is before the end of 2023 calendar we're going to have that release that that's the first initial software release to the fleet that enables us to to deliver airplanes off the production line with the tr3 hardware and the initial um, elements of block 4 content let me ask you another question that you and i've discussed before
1: The administration cut uh, the advanced engine technology program and has decided to upgrade the existing F-135 engine. It's going to be an expensive program and that is not really going to go into service until around 2028, 2030 anyway in terms of the refits that are required to bring the engine up to the original specification. Pratt is working that very, very hard. And almost everybody recognizes that the engine core upgrade has to happen no matter what, even if you go uh, to the AETP engine. Congress looks like it's gonna put some money back into that, uh, into AETP. How does this have to play out, Greg? Because ultimately, the AETP is demonstrating that it can get 30% more range, 30% more thrust. It's demonstrating that it can do the cooling. And all of these things are critical to the relevance and the long-term capabilities of the jet, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. How does this work out? When do we have to be making decisions because this is the nation's biggest defense project ever. It's the world's biggest defense project. You have allies that are piling in through the doors, JJ said, to buy the aircraft. But even existing customers are worried about the relevance of the airplane going forward because no airplane ever got lighter over time.
0: Yeah, I think, so I think the, I'll, I'll call it the enterprise. I think we've been focused on near-term requirements, what's required for engine update, engine improvement, right? As the airframe OEM, I'm thinking 2040, 2050, 2060. F-35 is going to be around into the 2070s, my belief. And the requirement set is going to be more demanding of power and cooling um, from a uh, avionics technology insertion into the airframe. And so what I really need, what I think the enterprise needs is that definition of requirement to some level of performance requirement that we are forecasting in the future what that power and cooling demand will be. That said, with an AETP, you also get aircraft performance improvement in terms of thrust and specific fuel consumption improvement. So you alluded to those things. So as an OEM, and I would say as an operator, I'm very interested in not just the power and cooling and the new capabilities that come, but that increased aircraft performance especially for an F-35 in an Indo-PACOM environment, now I have improved range. I have, uh, or maybe more loiter time relative to a mission. I talked previously about autonomous capability platforms. Well, the F-35 is going to be the quarterback more than likely relative to those kinds of platforms. I want the ability for that airplane to loiter in time, in space, at range. So I personally, as an OEM provider or Lockheed Martin more holistically, in in that, um i'm underwriting i think the airplane needs aetp and i would rather put that margin in the airplane as as much margin as i can get in it today such that i don't have to put another engine it you know in in a five year 10 year 15 year but let's let's look at a 10 year 20 year 30 year kind of a horizon what do we need i also think separate from aetp there's power thermal management so that we have the ability to improve those systems on the airplane But I do think both combined really provide the most margin and the most potential going forward relative to capabilities and performance for the airplane. But when do we have to make that
1: decision by? Right, I mean, it looks like now we were pumping down the road and- So
0: it, it really is dependent on, I would say, near term on the Block 5 capability set. So the customer really needs to come, I think, to industry and say, this is the power and cooling we need, and that's gonna inform AETP or not, and the timing associated with that. But I also think we ought to think a little longer term than we've allowed ourselves in the past. Let's look 20 years, let's look 30 years. As we do that, let's not be short-sighted. And if we're going to invest in a new engine and a new power thermal management system, let's give ourselves enough margin such that we can utilize that for as long as we can.
2: The F-35 is today's airplane. Tomorrow's airplane is the next generation air dominance and the Navy FAXX. We know Lockheed Martin can't talk about whether they're involved in those programs, although you do have a lovely new facility in Palmdale to build something. But you also study intensely what the market is. Given what the NGAD is likely to cost, what does a successful program look like? How many aircraft and roughly what timeline?
0: Yeah, we've heard from the Secretary of the Air Force, Kendall, talk about really Um, kind of a one-to-one for an F-22 program or record size. So that's kind of how we're citing the window associated with NGAD. I also think an NGAD opportunity would be, you know, I alluded to a family or a system of systems. My belief is the NGAD solution, whomever, however, is gonna be a, a part of that system of systems going forward. And so that'll further inform quantity, capability, Um, it'll inform the attributes associated with that. In the future, we're going to have autonomous collaborative platforms. We're going to have sensors, we're going to have shooters, we're going to have refuelers, we're going to have all those kinds of things. And in the past, I think we have looked at things that have an ability to do the majority of those things as a platform itself. In the future, you're going to see a lot more of the reliance upon the family of the system of systems to integrate across the different nodes and so you don't necessarily have to have everything built into one if that makes sense to you and this is really my perspective relative to the operational analysis that we do but today we already know especially informed by F 35 where we're, we're, we can be an elevated sensor and I pass that information maybe through a satellite maybe through some other means in space or in air or on the ground to a shooter, for example, a HIMARS. So we've already done designs of experiments where even though the HIMARS doesn't have the ability to see the threat, the F-35 does, and we integrate that information, we pass that information through a kill chain, and we we can apply a kinetic effect very successfully. And so I really think that's going to inform what NGAD looks like.
2: When we hear, for example, from Secretary Kendall that this is an aircraft that's going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Is that simply the manned aircraft at the center or is that referring to a single deployable unit, including the CCAs that go along with it?
0: Yeah, I I really can't speak to that. I, I, you know, in that family system of system aspects of things, I can't break that cost out specifically.
1: Um, I'm gonna ask you a cargo aircraft question. You guys built, obviously, the uh, nation's heavy lift transporter, the C-5, which has served admirably now for going on six decades, and the M version is just a tremendous aircraft. The C-130 obviously created the genre, uh, and you guys have built thousands of airplanes, and it's still got a little bit of life uh, left in it, although the KC-390 is picking up some, some business. Given the threat environment, Greg, what do the next generation of transports for the United States Air Force look like on the heavy end of it, on the tactical end of it? Because you guys have a tendency of looking at this as sort of a vision and how everything sort of fits into it. What's that vision of that battle space and the kind of transport the customer is going to need?
0: We have actually been looking at this for some time within Lockheed Martin in particular. And so it's going to come back to customer requirements. But I do believe, first of all, the C-130 has got some legs remaining in it. So with that said, you're going to see Australia, one of the original J customers with 12, procurement of 12. They're going to recap that with 20 to 24 new Js. You're going to see, my belief, the Air Force replace the remaining H fleet with C-130J. You're going to see the Navy Tacomo mission taken on with C-130J. You're going to see the Navy Reserve come look at C-130J. You're going to see more traditional customers, C-130J. So I say that. I don't see the end as near for C-130J. I see the J going for quite some time. And you know it's, it's a very versatile platform with, like, I think the J model has 18 different mission sets associated with it. So as we look forward, really two things I think are going to inform what the configuration looks like. And we heard uh, coming out of AFA discussion around NGAS, next generation refueler, and NGAL, next generation airlift. Those requirements are going to define both tactical and strategic airlift, right? And so we're waiting. Our customers asking us through RFIs what kind of considerations will we have in those constructs. Would it be blended body? Would it be strategical, more long-range? Would they be penetrating? Would they have stealth characteristics? Would they have an ability to be those nodes I've talked about in a system of systems? Those are the kinds of things that are going to underwrite and inform what the future gas and NGAL requirements are.
2: Just quickly on C-130, yes, there may be some in the future, but right now the budget has a grand total of four over the next five years. Do you need some kind of bridging to get to the Australian order, or is the timing going to come in such that it's heel to toe?
0: We have um, orders coming in relative to continuous production on C-130J, and we're typically producing 20 to 24 a year, and I see the ability to maintain and sustain that going forward.
1: Um, Let me ask you a broader stealth question. The Swedes, for example, were doing a lot of, uh, they're very good at electronic warfare and would do a lot of experiments on how to detect stealth, for example, and how to detect a stealthy aircraft because it is a low observable aircraft. So if you know what you're looking for, you will be able to get a trace and a track on it. And the United States Air Force spends an enormous amount of money, and you guys expend a lot of bandwidth to try to figure out what that threat environment looks like. What does the air environment, Greg, look like with ubiquitous satellite surveillance and open source intelligence, where you might not be able to see a stealth fighter uh, on a radar, but you might be able to see like, wait, wait a minute, there are 24 F-35s going somewhere and they're not transponding, right? What, what does this look like in a more transparent world and how you deliver kind of air power? And as you know, a premier contractor that developed some of the most amazing aircraft in the, in the inventory and, and in the history of air warfare, How do you guys think through that part of the problem of ubiquitous open source surveillance where lots of very inexpensive satellites will go, I don't know where they're going, but they're going?
0: Yeah, so I think it's, I'm going to, you may think I'm copping out, so to speak, but I'm going to go back to that system of systems approach where you have an ability to apply effects in different spectrum to shape the environment that you're operating in. And so that's, that's the future, I think, is, is that family associated with those kinds of attributes where we're going to work to influence.
2: You've got a pretty full plate. F-35 is in high-rate production. F-16 is in high-rate production. CH-53K. Black Hawk line is full. You're working with other countries on F-2 and T-50, maybe NGAD. What capacity does Lockheed have for new work and where are you looking for it
0: so you know if we look at our staffing if you look at the resources we have available there is still capacity within the system to do more and I also think in the what I call the digitization of the future um, in particular Lockheed Martin has invested and will be investing in what we call a program called 1LMX and this is where this is my 34th year in my career and when I graduated university I was told Greg you're going to work on a paperless airplane I've yet to work on a paperless airplane. I will tell you though, in development today, in the ADP, in the Skunk Works, we are doing truly paperless development, design, prototype, manufacture, sustainment of things. In that is efficiency gain, learning curve within a factory. Um, We are building things 60% faster than we have before, comparable things. Um, We're doing our design approach relative to determinate assembly and looking at that and we're seeing much improved quality in terms of reduction in what we call scrap rework and repair we're also seeing reduction of tooling required so in my past c-130 in particular monuments of tools required to hold the structure to build the aircraft and in these these designs of experiments i'm talking about we're talking about Very limited tooling required um, to build these things. So the capacity that I have today with those monuments, tomorrow, won't have those monuments. And we'll also be able to retool them very quickly. Um, So today you may be building X and literally overnight through reprogramming. And I know that sounds really simple, but you could re-plan your floor and produce something else. Additive manufacturing, I think we're still very much on the front end of what additive manufacturing is, and there's going to be tremendous opportunity and improvement in additive manufacturing. Not just from a new production point of view, but from a sustainment point of view. I talk about this digital thread. If you think about sustaining of our products after delivery, so think of a thumbprint or fingerprint that stays with every specific tail that defines how that product was built, what the configuration of that product was, how it's modified, Um, you understand the exact configuration of those airplanes. You mentioned the C5 and the M program. One of the the front end difficulties was getting an airplane that's 30 years old with undocumented mods, right, and understanding what the as-built is as it comes into the factory. And then I've got to update all my engineering to do the work I've been paid to do relative to the mod. Well, if that's all digitized, I understand exactly what that is as the airplane comes in mod world and I know how to do that work very rapidly. Or perhaps the customer does that work. I don't even need to be the one to do that work. Evolution, revolution, I don't know, but I think digital transformation is here, it's now. Especially all of our new start programs are going to be started this way and they're going to be maintained and built this way. And then you'll see us take legacy programs like a 130, like an F-35, And where it makes sense, you'll see us digitize those things for a full thread, right? And I think we've talked around digitization, but it truly is single thread kind of birth to sustainment and everything in between, like I've never seen before. And I think that's going to provide the capacity Lockheed Martin needs to do all the things you've talked about.
1: One last question. At the show, the SCAF, uh, obviously, the French, German, Spanish airplane is uh, the bell of this ball the Tempest or the Global Combat Aircraft Program is going on with the UK, Italy, Japan, and and maybe Sweden. And when you talk to senior officials from all the countries, they talk about the importance to make sure that at least we can all communicate with one another. We've heard that message from the chief and the secretary. Let's have diversity in these fleets, but make sure that we have uh, the right kind of connectivity. How soon do we need to start getting to standards? Because when you talk to folks on all the teams, they're like, look, the sooner we come to some kind of common data sharing standard, um, the, the better. From your standpoint, as somebody who's working this and having conversations with a whole variety of these nations, what's the trick to making sure that we get this right, and, and on the government side, but also on the industry side?
0: Yeah, timings now, Vago, we need this coordination, we need this standard today, such that whoever's building, we have the ability to have that cross communication. Now, how you do that? You know with open radio architecture with open mission systems architecture we we definitely have the hardware um, in place today to be acceptance of that standard we have software programmable things today so we are right on the cusp the standards needed now i think we need our customers in the united states osd and our services define what those standards are and then you know that relation with i would say here we are in nato NATO standards associated with those OSD standards, right? That's where we need that to occur. It needs to occur as soon as possible. Greg, thanks so very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.